Lucas on Life. A very good evening to you and welcome to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Jeff Lucas. It's been a week of mixed emotions, hasn't it, with the passing of His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh, which didn't exactly come as a surprise with his advanced age and recent hospitalisation, but it has certainly been a marker moment in our history, because whether you're a royalist or not, Prince Philip has been part of the fabric of our national culture for such a long time. And we need to continue to pray for the royal family, and especially for Her Majesty the Queen at this time. The loss of a lifetime partner is devastating, as many Premier listeners will know, and people who wear crowns still cry. And then, in the midst of the sadness of the Duke's passing, there's been the joy of lockdown slowly being released. It feels like this crazy, weird time when there's been an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. It might actually be coming to an end at last, or so we hope and pray. But here's a concern. There's been a lot of talk about getting back to normal. But surely during this difficult year, and that's an understatement as we've all faced so many challenges, there have been many lessons learned. Years ago, a book was written with the title, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And the thesis was that times of suffering can refine our faith and actually help us to acquire wisdom. There are treasures in the darkness, to use a biblical phrase. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'd like us to think about lessons learned, wisdom gained, insights gleaned, and decisions made that can so help us as we continue our journey of life. I'll say it again, the time of trial can be an academy, an unwelcome academy for sure, but one where we can learn so much. And so I'll be sharing some of my lessons learned, and I'd love to hear from you too. Share some of your wisdom, please, and perhaps I can share it with our listeners. Email me at lucasonlife at premier.org.uk. I'll give that email address out again later. Lockdown Treasures, here on Lucas on Life. It's Mercy Me. We're reflecting on lockdown treasures, wisdom, lessons learned from the time of lockdown, wisdom that we don't want to lose as we gradually emerge from lockdown. During this time, there have been so many new phrases introduced into popular vocabulary as our political leaders have faced the cameras for thousands of hours of interviews. And I've mentioned this before, but the phrase lockdown is one of them. Lockdown used to describe what happened in prisons when the inmates got restless and tears were well, they were in wedding cakes. Ramping up used to be an activity much loved by skateboarders and BMX bike riders and rolling out was the domain of carpet layers. The point is this, we haven't traveled this pandemic road before, at least at this global level, and that meant that we had to experiment. We had to be flexible and adaptable. We've had to work from home, get the groceries delivered, juggle care for children with our work, communicate by Zoom, and share a cup of tea while quietly freezing at a table outside. 
But we Christians are not always so good with flexibility, change, adaptability, as I discovered when, as a young minister, I attempted to bring some change to our little congregation. Looking back on it, I realized that it was a rather foolhardy decision, crazy even, but I just had to do it because I was a driven man. I was nervous, scared, but something within me drove me to it. I took a deep breath and stepped out like a Martin Luther, marching resolutely towards the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Compelled by my convictions, I just did it. It was a historic Wednesday evening. Wednesday night was the time when our church had its weekly Bible study and prayer meeting. As the senior pastor of the church, I led the meeting, announced the songs, and delivered the Bible study itself. But this particular Wednesday night was going to be an evening that nobody in our church would ever forget. I arrived at the church building an hour before time, switched the lights on, and braced myself. I needed time and space in order to bring my extraordinary plan into being. Flicking on the lights, I paused for a moment. The hesitation almost paralyzed me as blood roared in my ears as I considered my wild plan. And then, as if stilled for the task by an invisible angel, I gritted my teeth and just did it. I did it. I rearranged the chairs. For as long as I could remember, our small church had sat in pew-like rows every Wednesday night, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I'd been teaching that the church is a family, not just a study group, and so it seemed to me that something a little more informal and relational would be more appropriate. And so I put the chairs into a big circle. There. It was done. And then I waited. Thirty minutes later, the good people of our church began to arrive. The first couple were relatively new Christians. They'd not had the benefit of the teaching that there was some kind of divine seating plan, and so with a smile and a cheery greeting, they just sat down without comment. But it was the calm before the storm, because a few of the more mature believers began to drift in. Some just sat and went immediately into prayer, evidently determined to bring their concerns about the new circular arrangements of the seating to the throne of grace. Others were more immediately outspoken. Good evening, Pastor. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. Praise the Lord. Um, this is unusual. What? The chairs, they, uh, they, uh, yes? Pastor, the chairs are in a circle. This was most observant, and so I congratulated the person for noticing the altered geometry of the chairs. But this, as you know already, was not actually their point. Their observation was a prelude to protest, and then it came. The first wave was based around historical precedent. Pastor, the chairs, we've just, we've just never had them in a circle before. No, I said, you're quite right, we haven't, which seems to me to be a perfectly good reason for trying something new. I held the what kind of family sits in rows argument like an ace card up my sleeve, a reserve weapon in case the battle got really ugly. The next wave of attack was based around biblical instruction. Yes, but of course new doesn't necessarily mean good, now does it, Pastor? Is it biblical to have the chairs in a circle? I wanted to laugh out loud at the idea of a God who would thunder commands about just how his people should sit themselves down when they got together. And so I responded, 
I can't think of a single Bible verse in the New Testament that speaks about seating plans. Perhaps God doesn't care. And then, I confess, came a temptation to mischief. Actually, there is some New Testament help in the whole area of seating plans. The protester suddenly brightened up at this. Perhaps I was about to provide him with some unexpected ammunition. Paul preached for so long one night, I said, that a poor chap fell out of the window and had to have some serious prayer. Perhaps this teaches us to arrange the chairs, be they in circles or rows, at a sufficiently safe distance from the nearby first floor windows. However, due to the fact that we are on the ground floor, this particular New Testament imperative is in fact not applicable to our situation. I know, it was a naughty but devastating blow, and the would-be protester sat down and assumed body language that quietly screamed, Oh Lord, the chairs are in a circle. Whatever next in our church? The next week, I decided to have another little Reformation moment. We always used to have a cup of tea and a rich tea biscuit at the end of our meeting. I've been thinking, why should we have it at the end of the service? Why not in the middle of the service? Were we actually sending a theological signal to our people by consigning the refreshment bit to the end of the meeting? You know, prayer's spiritual, Bible study's spiritual, but sipping tea and biting biscuits is not quite spiritual. So the chairs were in a circle once again, and people were actually getting to quite like the arrangement. We had our usual time of praise and worship, and then on cue, everyone reached for their Bibles like biblical gunfighters at the OK Corral. Time to walk on water. Or tea, as it turned out. So I spoke up. Please put your Bibles down for a few minutes. We're going to have a cup of tea or coffee and a biscuit or two. Rich tea biscuits are not available this evening. As far as I'm concerned, and it's just my opinion, rich tea means boring. Surely only Christians eat them. McVitie's would go out of business if it was not for the huge quantities of rich tea biscuits that Christians chomp through every Sunday evening. So I thought we'd splash out a bit on Jaffa cakes. I rather like the orangey bit in the middle. The kettle's boiling. There was a moment of stunned silence as the awesome news settled in. To quote the carol writer, mighty dread had seized their troubled minds. Tea? Now? Right slap bang in the middle of the service. And not only that, but Jaffa cakes as well. Oh, the madness of it all, the sheer decadence. Someone spoke up. Pastor, you mean we're going to have a cup of tea now? I stood firm, fearless in we shall fight them on the beaches spirit. Yes, we are. In the middle of the service, we're going to have tea and a biscuit. Yes, I said, actually, there's no such thing in New Testament thinking as a service. If you asked the Apostle Paul if he'd enjoyed the service, he wouldn't know what you were on about. In the early church, they didn't have service, but lots of meetings, meetings together to eat and drink and pray and cry and strengthen each other. The very concept of a service is difficult to present from the pages of the New Testament. So, pop the kettle on, let's get biblical. And so we sat there, our chairs in a circle, sipping our tea, savouring the luxuriously lovely orangey bits, and we had a very nice time. I have to say, I take my hat off in respect to the members of the church that I was leading. Because all of this, I know it sounds so small, so insignificant, but on those two Wednesday evenings, we embraced a little bit of change and flexibility. We actually asked questions about why we do what we do and came up with what seemed to be some risky conclusions as a result. I'm glad we put the chairs in a circle 
and put the kettle on. Treasures from lockdown. Let's be flexible. So here's my second piece of wisdom from lockdown, and in a way, it's patently obvious, but it's important to be reminded of this truth. Here is the news. As followers of Jesus, we are not exempted from trouble, and trouble shouldn't surprise us. Pandemic has hit the world, and that includes Christians. In John chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples a plain truth when he said, in this world you will have trouble. Now, these powerful words have not been my favorite words from the New Testament. I don't have them plastered on my Christian refrigerator just to remind me. But there's a lot about trouble in the Bible. John, in his gospel, uses the term world 80 times, and one-third of those occurrences describe the world as a place of unbelief and conflict. We live in a battle zone. For us, in a non-lockdown world, trouble comes, and often it's trivial. You go to a nice restaurant, your favorite. That's just great. But as you get out of the car to go into the restaurant, you break a nail after an expensive manicure. I hate it when that happens. You have to drive home on the M1 where roadworks are planned for the next 400 years. You see, trouble at a trivial level occurs in our lives perhaps every day. And of course, we've experienced in the last 12 months Trouble at a tragic level with sickness, bereavement, unemployment, breakdown of relationships, mental health challenges. But the Bible, again, never exempts us from those experiences. There's a word for trouble in the New Testament that occurs nine times in Paul's two letters to the church in Corinth. So let's just be honest about life with ourselves and be honest about life with young people. Often, we can suggest to them that if they just do the right thing, life will just be blissful. If you can dream it, you can do it. But actually, people often say life just hasn't turned out the way they thought it would. In fact, a friend of mine says, life is what happened when you expected something else. Let's realize that we're living in a broken world of pressure and therefore not be angry at God for doing what he never promised in the first place. Wisdom from lockdown troubles part of the deal. Here's my third item of wisdom for you tonight. And by the way, I'd love it if you would share your lessons from lockdown with me. You can contact me at lucasonlife at premier.org.uk. Here's another lesson from lockdown that I've experienced, and that is that my head has a door. By that, I mean that we have levels of control about what we think. Frequently, when Jesus encountered people, he told them to take heart. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. You read about it in Matthew 9 and verse 2. Jesus was saying, adopt this way of thinking. Be encouraged. Something similar happens in Acts 23, where we read, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. In other words, we are being told that we are not to be at the mercy of every thought that pops into our minds, but we can choose our attitude. I am encouraged and humbled by the story of Deborah Veal. 
In 2002, together with Andrew, her husband at the time, Deborah entered a competition to row a 20-foot-long plywood boat for 2,900 nautical miles in a transatlantic race. All seemed lost when, battling anxiety, Andrew abandoned the trip after just 14 days, but Deborah decided to continue alone in a 111-day marathon, and some days she'd row for hours, take a well-earned sleep break, only to discover that she'd drifted right back to where she'd started the day. She battled waves that towered above her tiny boat, was battered by false eight squalls. Inquisitive sharks and looming supertankers bore down on her. Sleeplessness took its toll. But Deborah had a post-it note on the cockpit of her boat that simply said three words, choose your attitude. I know that mental health is a very complex issue, and I'm not trying to be superficial in my response here. But as I hear Jesus tell me, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I realize that you and I can take baby steps about the way that we think and realize that we are not at the mercy of our minds. And so as we've been thinking about treasures from lockdown, let's know that we can be flexible. Let's not be surprised at trouble. And let's know that our head has a door. We can choose our attitude. It's not easy. But with God's help, it's possible. Don't forget, I'd love to hear from you with your lockdown lessons. Email me at lucasonlife at premier.org.uk. And it doesn't have to be an essay, just a sentence or two or a couple of bullet points. I'd love to hear about your lessons from lockdown. See you next time. Lucas on Life.